Hello. You're listening to Constant Tome, the only Hellblazer podcast on iTunes, the only show devoted to John Constantine. I'm your host, Nick Antoine. Happy All Hallows' Eve. Don't do anything I wouldn't. Old business. Last night was Devil's Night. I hope you enjoyed the morning star. New business. When meditating, remember to focus on yourself. If you're not careful, that daydream can turn into a frightful nightmare. Now, on with the show. Hellblazer number 10, Sex and Death. Written by Jamie Delano. Dave McKeon put together the masterpiece of a cover. Richard Piers Rayner penciled these dreams into our reality. Mark Buckingham gave them form with the blackest of inks. With paint, Laverne Kinzierski gave them life. Todd Klein wrote the letters for this story. As the editor, Karen Berger beheld its majesty first. Before we get into this issue, I do want to point out that there was the title that occurred in between issues 9 and 10 of Hellblazer. It was uh, issue number 76 of Swamp Thing, entitled L'Adoration de la Terre. I guess that would be the, the love of the earth. Uh, French. Uh, not necessarily the greatest French in the world. In the previous episode, I didn't. I, I tried desperately not to give up the ghost and spoil how the episode ended, but they kind of bleed directly into each other. Um... You know, talk, always talk about stuff after the fact. Uh, if it's something cliffhangery from the previous episode, but um, uh, John was encountered by uh, Doctor Holland in his room, and we don't know why. And come to find out, in La Duration de la Terre, uh, Swampy wanted to have a sexual congress with Abby, and in one way, shape, or form, if Swamp Thing allowed his spirit to actually project into John's body and John could go somewhere else as it were he wouldn't give him control of the avatar um, you know of the green Uh, for more information on that go to Justice League Dark Um, Justice League Dark I keep doing that go to Darker Corners the Justice League Dark episodes are there but also the Swamp Thing episodes Um, or just you know read Swamp Thing um, that where John ends up is in this issue, in issue 10 of Hellblazer, where Swamp Thing ends up is in issue 76, La Duration de la Terre. Um, now, I did, you know, minimal research, but research nonetheless. Uh, according to uh, Yahoo Answers, um, apparently this issue of, you know, issue 10 of Hellblazer wasn't reprinted, so for the most part it's people who have the original copy of this and people who are able to get a digital edition when they were sold or being put on sale. Uh, it wasn't reprinted in the Original Sins tradeback. Original Sins was issues 1 through 9, so I can only imagine how confusing that was for the readership to get to issue 9 and have that cliffhanger where John is confronted by Dr. Holland. Um, for the most part, uh, 
Swamp Thing number 77 deals with the ramifications of the union between John's body and Abby's body, given that John was supposed to uh, impregnate uh, Zed and, and didn't. That was, the, that was the what we were led to believe, that he spilled his seed, as it were, on the earth and not within the womb. Um, I guess within the vagina and then egg and then the egg would travel up to uterus. You, you know how that stuff works. Um, hopefully, if you don't, go research it. It's interesting. Procreation is a fascinating cycle. Um, so one thing number 77 deals with uh, Dr. Holland's ramifications, like the, the, the karma he has to face, having tampered with the gods, as it were. He's supposed to be a representative of the gods. Um, and instead, he's acting as a representative of man, a, a theme that plays out in the New 52 Swamp Thing very heavily. Um, in, in Constantine, however, we don't see, and, and you know, over in Swamp Thing number, I guess it would be 77, we don't see what happens with Constantine, as you, one would assume. When you come over to Swamp Thing number, I mean, when you come over to Constantine number 10, Hellblazer number 10, it's early in the morning, people, um, then you end up seeing what happened to John, and that's why we pick up precisely where we pick up in this issue. Um, Swamp Thing number 76 wasn't the first time that uh, Swamp Thing in one way, shape, or form was able to have sex. The most famous one being issue number 34, entitled The Right, or entitled Right of Spring. I was going to call it The Right of Spring. But Right of Spring, R-I-T-E, play on words. Uh, it was drawn by Stephen Bissett and John Tottlebin. Uh, and the colors are done by Tatiana Wood, if I'm not mistaken. It would be Stephen Bissett, penciler, John Tottlebin, inker, Tatiana Wood, colors. Uh, Stephen, and all three of them worked on not only the cover, but the interior art as well. Uh, and in this issue, was a, it's, it's, it's world-renowned as this issue-long sexual congress between Dr. Holland and Abigail Arcane. About, well, not about, definitively 42 issues later, uh, they have Congress again, but instead of doing it the exact same way where Swamp Thing is intermingling with Abigail Arcane the way that they do, given the story device in that issue, in issue 76, uh, he astrally projects his form into John's body. Um, that's why what ends up happening within the issue Issue 10 uh, ends up happening the way that it does. But it's still uh, a belief held by the character of Abigail that Swamp Thing was the one having sex with her. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to a moment within that issue a little bit later that I think wasn't a mistake. But let's start at the cover with Issue 10. Um, as per usual, just beautiful imagery, stark... Um, using my tablet, you know, as I normally do with these issues, with the covers. I mean, I do it with the interiors, but with the covers as well. I just zoomed in and slowly panned around, and I got so lost in it, I kind of tricked myself into, I guess, misremembering that John Constantine wasn't falling, like there wasn't a figure falling, and I was looking at it, and it was like, oh, it looks like a giant hand on the left. Like, you know, it looked like a hand coming up, and then I pulled back, it's like, oh, no, we had somebody's coat. 
but it's fascinating that my mind automatically started seeing a hand where there wasn't a hand before, perhaps reaching up. Because if you look at both of his hands in the palm, or in the respective palms, um, he's got an eye. An eye that's kind of right side up, like all the rest of the eyes. They're not, it's not tilted or anything given the fact that he's falling. And his hands are in different positions. It, I, you know, I've mentioned this before, but anytime I see an eye and a hand, it reminds me of the gate. It was a stark image that that was burned indelibly into my psyche as a child. And now every time I see the film, it's just a reinforcement of how bizarre that image was. So much so that when I subsequently saw Pan's Labyrinth, I, was, I automatically remembered that film. Even though Pan's Labyrinth is, a, is an awesome film. Beautiful. Beautifully rendered. But still, every time I see an eye and a hand, I think, young Stephen Dorff. If you haven't seen The Gate, go check it out. And I recommend, if you if you enjoyed the first Gate movie, watch the second one. It's a different tone, but, you know, horror movies are horror movies. They're bound to have their, their good points and bad points. They're made, you know, way before the technological advancement of overly crisp cinema. Uh, so you get to watch something that gives you that nostalgic feeling. It's a beautiful thing beautiful thing. Um, I think this was an apt issue. It was released in October of 1988. And given the trippy nature of it, the bizarre aspects, um, or rather the bizarre circumstances that the character was placed into, it's it's, it's uh, fitting, quite fitting. And so the first image, we're made to believe that this is somewhere in space. And given the context that the character, our main character, John, is is traveling, what's the best way to say this, within the same universe, but betwixt dimensions via astral projection, um, showing it, giving a representation of the universe, uh, and, and what we see here, um, sperm floating through the cosmos, uh, exiting from what one can only assume is a, a red dwarf. More allegory, people call it, you know, um, the flesh rocket, as it were. Yeah. That, that it could be engorged in red or pink. Um, this, this star starts off red and gets pinker and pinker and pinker before we see these screaming fetuses flying through the ether, as it were. It's, a, it's one of those images that, you know, as an adult, you, sh you should be very calm with. It shouldn't, it shouldn't bother you that reproductive uh, material is being represented on a page. But it's understandable if it catches you off guard because you don't expect to see it in different places. Especially this representation, you automatically assume, okay, something bizarre is happening. And... We see a, a giant heart in this beautiful dual spa splash page. This giant heart that's thrusting all these newborn individuals towards the earth. And I feel like that's a strand that doesn't necessarily get picked back up again, but perhaps it wasn't meant to be. Perhaps it was meant to be a subtle nod to the, um, the twining issue that this shares um, its story with, that being issue 76. Of Swamp Thing because it it wouldn't it would have been released concurrently one would assume but the story would go succinctly Hellblazer 9 Swamp Thing 76 
how Blazer 10, Swamp Thing 77, unless they came out the exact same week. That's the way that the story would pan out. So this is what would be happening, in essence, at the end of Sexual Congress of Swamp Thing, issue number 76. Um, if you didn't already know, most people already know by this point, uh, the, the connection between sex and death, for the most part, stems from a um, an immigrant's understanding of the French language, uh, le petit mort. Um, I'm sure it could have a different connotation if you are French. I'm not French, so I don't know. I'm, again, I would be an immigrant in their eyes. As, as far as I've been led to believe, le petit mort, the little death, it's an allegory for an orgasm. Uh, that your body dies, uh, or rather that your, your body's alive, but made comatose for a small amount of time, whether it's a few seconds or a few minutes, depending on how intense your orgasms are. And your spirit transcends to a place where you are no longer thinking, you are no longer concerned with this existence. Both of those instances made to be synonymous with the sensation of death. So sex is not necessarily death, but it can cause death. And the beautiful thing, or the, the sensations of death, and the beautiful thing about that is that through that death, life can be spawned. Now, as I stated, the agreement between Nergal and Swam, and Johnny, uh, one of them was that John would be the father of Abigail's child, well, the father of Zed's child, <clears throat> that John would be the father of Zed's child, as opposed to the angelic host uh, being a representation of of the divine, of, of God, as it were, um, instead of that being um, taken the place of, of a holy father, as it were. Nergal wanted John to be the one because they didn't want the damn night, the um, whole, the crusaders to have that much power on earth. Uh, and John was trying to find a way to make it so that nobody had too much power. His little deal with Swampy Wamps that went down in issue 76 it kind of necessitated what we see here, which is Swamp Thing being thrust about. Uh, one would assume thrust about the United Kingdom. That's my assumption. Um, but again, this dual splash page. We're meant to believe, given the way that the panels go down, they're split up, that it's just one entity moving from, I guess you could say, the third panel, swirling around inside and out of this gigantic heart floating above the earth before it exits for the final time. But there are a bunch of other sperm that exit. Now, given that it's supposed to be John, one could autom one could assume that, as with you, as with myself, as as with anyone, they were the the strongest sperm, the luckiest sperm, the the spermatozoa that made its way to the ovum, and uh, burrowed its its way deep past beyond the shell, spewing forth a a, a protein-based um, liquid that it secreted from its head in order to break through the, the, uh, the um, human-coated shell and create life. 
but only the millions of other uh, chromosomal copies that die out and are killed by the, the pH imbalance within the uh, vaginal cavity, as it were. So it's understandable to assume that, oh, maybe there's a bunch of other Johns uh, in parallel universes, or which there, there are in the context of the uh, DC multiverse, but in this instance that there are new ones being born. Uh, but that's not the case. He was thrown into the astral realm. His, his astral form is still tied to his physical body, so perhaps sensations that the physical body is uh, experiencing are manifesting themselves in the astral plane, which is the case here. And so now he's being thrown onto the planet and really, really into completely innocuous places, um, given somewhat premonitions, uh, seeing sexual congress, seeing uh, Mrs. McGuire, as it were, watching Coronation Street. <laughs> I've never seen it myself because I'm not in the UK and I don't care to watch the show, so I don't go out of my way to find it. But uh, on the paper page 5, digital 6, if you look in the middle panel, the TV's on. It says Coronation Street. That's probably the way the opening credits look. She's quite close to it. She's got a book on her lap. And if I'm not mistaken, that's a TV guide on the, uh, on the table. And perhaps a representation of Princess Diana. I'm not sure. Um, but her body is emanating with the same type of light like light streaks that uh, the other tenants within the building that he passed by have. Um, and if you look at it, he's on a particular plane of existence, so he's able to see certain things a certain way. He's white, the same way that the ghosts that have been haunting him are white. But the only things that have rays emanating from them are the individuals that are, as we see here, transcending planes, so either having sex or sleeping, and the speakers in the room that the sexual congress is going down in, and the TV in the room where the old lady is sleeping. So, they, you know, these things that are vibrating at a particular frequency, those are the ones that seem to be emanating life. The people having sex, they're quite literally on fire from John's perspective. Even though we're looking from a third-person view, we're seeing what John is seeing. These muted colors in these rooms, this, this um, completely, I guess, opaque green in his room, but then in, in this, the room of sexual congress, uh, the, the room of glorious fucking, um, we get this orange light emanating from them that mixes with the green, and where this older lady is slumbering, we get this purple light, as if it's the light at the end of the spectrum, the green being in the middle, you know, of Roy G. Biv, and the violet being closer towards the end, once you get towards the radioactivity, just the slumber, passing away, perhaps vibrating to the point where, as you one would assume, your spirit can leave your body and you could actually project to go into the dream state, uh, as opposed to going the other way. But again, that's closer to, you know, alpha waves, beta waves, gamma waves, delta waves. Again, it could be reading too much into it, but that's what it seems to be to me. Um, he falls and falls and falls. He, he's trying to get a grip on his reality, but can't because he's He's been thrust onto the astral plane, probably against his will. Again, I didn't read issue 76, but that's that's what we're being led to believe here. And I just I like this image, this middle one, where he's kind of caught between the pavement. Like, like the pavement is holding him between uh, this street, as it were, the outside street, 
and the sewer system below. And it's disgusting. It's disgusting. But when he falls through, instead of falling into the sewer system, it's as if the earth itself is flat. As if the earth is flat and what is whatever has pushed him to the to the brink uh, is is being the the dictator of the destination of this journey. And we'll get to that a little bit later, this idea of the earth being flat. It ties in here. Even though of course you know it's round. Or really it's it's oval. It's slightly oval. It's uh, squeezed in at the poles because of gravity. But, you know, people think the Earth, globe, circle. Um, I'm not sure where Edgeware Road is. Um, given where the lights are on this train, this must clearly be another country, and then I'll assume the United Kingdom and not America because the, the position of the lights, American trains don't have the lights there. They're all made from pretty much the same company, and the lights are on either side. Um, but anyway, our, our central character, the Hellblazer himself, um, he realizes where he is. And it says London here, so he's in London. On the side of the bus says, see London, as you've never seen it. Um, beautiful. No, another adjective. Um, meticulous. Um, detail. <laughs> I thought I was going to stop saying detail, but... Um, I haven't the sourced it up lately. Intricate, sorry about the little sound, intricate representations of the real world. Uh, the bus stops. It doesn't just have a bunch of squiggly lines and a bus stopping there and people lining up. No, it's actually written out, you know, bus stop. All these, all these other little things on it. Got a, a yoga center called, never right, at 8 Sussex, eight Sussex Garden. Um, again, tying into the context of the story, people that would be performing yoga, uh, you know, in essence, yoga is preparing the body for meditation, releasing endorphins so that you can relax that much more. Uh, he's, he's, he mentions that he's kind of just been bounced around and that's what it looks like at the beginning of this, as if he was throwing like a baseball and he's just kind of knocking about. I want to, I want to focus the attention again to these individuals who are made to be aware or are more aware than other people in the middle image the who we assume to be blind man with his seeing eye dog because it looks like there's a vest on the dog even though the next image it doesn't look to be that way both the man and the dog have those lines around them like they're aware of something that other people aren't and the dog actually follows the trail not only looks at Constantine when he lands but follows John when he bounces around, follows his image. And yes, the other two individuals on the street have the same look, like the same shine, but it might be that they're on the same frequency now as the dog, because they're aware of the dog, because it's barking and it's right next to them. In that image right under it, you can see again, all these different yoga poses, these yogic poses, and the, the base of the skull being connected with an umbilical cord to the astral body of these individuals who are meditating. So this place that John is knocked into, as it were, bouncing off the street onto the sidewalk and then into this place that's got this yoga studio. The only person that notices him floating around is the yoga master. You see he's turned his head to go look at him, but everybody else is in their own plane of existence. Everybody else is gone. And funnily enough, the two people that are going out of their way to stretch and bend into weird positions 
haven't actually projected, or at least we don't see their projections. The people that are just calm and in, in, in plain supplication, they are in their astral forms matched and above their bodies. It's fascinating. The teacher still sees him, and I completely missed this last time around in the bottom right, puts his finger over his mouth, over his own mouth, and, and and kind of points to John to go somewhere else, and quite literally thrusts him out of the room like you're a spirit that shouldn't be here. Not that you're an evil spirit, mind you, but just, hey, you, you should go that way. And he does, ends up outside. Like it's, this is just a beautiful journey. We're seeing all this stuff that's supposed to be his spirit uh, having to do with the fact that it doesn't have a body. And we get a tiny little pun here of needing an astral plane, and we get a bizarre little Cessna. It's hilarious. And a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful half-page image of just the, the, the space between worlds, the space between uh, the, the dimensions. And you can have a world and a dimension. I've mentioned this before. You can have worlds in separate dimensions. You can have dimensions in separate universes. But dimensions are not universes. It's a weird ABC kind of thought process. Um, but we, we, we cut over to what's been going on with Zed. You know, rechristened Mary, the, 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 who's going to be the avatar of, well, well I guess the, the, the as, as she's mentioned, the chalice, the receptacle of the Holy Seed, as it were. Not the Holy Seed, but the Holy Seed. Uh, and everybody in attendance at, with the Crusaders is quite elated because they feel like they've accomplished their mission. And something goes on that, to me, looks like holy rape quite literally. And I've never seen it as anything other than that. Now, if you don't believe me, just look at the top of page 10, the way that the body is depicted to be thrashing around and, and completely not in control. Just having to completely surrender to this higher power. That's a, that's a running theme in Christianity, surrendering to a higher power, really in, in a lot of religions, just surrendering to the deity. Um, if you think of the spirit of, uh, well, not the spirit, but but the the, the 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 character of the Virgin Mary and the angel, if I'm not mistaken, the angel Gabriel. Um, the Virgin Mary was not asked whether she wanted to host the body of Christ. She was just told that she was going to be, and she was going to be pregnant. And throughout history, you know, whether it was Zeus or Hera or Inanna, or Enlil. Every deity in one way, shape, or form has hoisted themselves upon uh, a human and told them that they were going to birth a child uh, and not ask them if they were going to birth a child. And everybody seems to be okay with this. Um, perhaps it could be that it's not seen as that type of connotation because rape is put in the purview of human-to-human -human interaction. Um, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, uh, male or female. And I mean that literally, you know, male homosexuality, female sexuality, rape in those instances, or rape in the instance of heterosexuality where the male is raping the female or the female is raping the male. And male rape is very, very, it's a commonality that's just not talked about. I'm not going to go into it here, but there are real-world allegories that I've come across. Um, I won't say that I've been raped personally, 
uh, by a female, but I've definitely been taken advantage of sexually in an intoxicated state uh, by a woman. Um, and who, who do you complain to? You know, who, who do you tell, oh, when I was finished, I was done having sex, but because of what other, other chemicals were going through my body, my body didn't give off the impression that I was done. Um, and that other individual was intoxicated as well. One would assume they could have been completely sober. And uh, she continued against my my body's, despite the fact that my body was not relaying what my mind was saying, uh, my mind was quite ready to to end that session. Who, who, who do you who do you go to to say, oh no, that's what the case was. You know, that's what this is. Nobody believes it. Not to say that it's lopsided. Of course, it's 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 something that you're. It's what's uh, more commonplace. That's easier. That's a little more easily accepted. When you have newer instances, you have to aggregate them so people can understand that it's it's something that's beyond an idea, but and it's in all actuality a reality. But this in this instance definitely made me think about that about psychic rape, about ghostly rape, about um, the idea of a deity, whether it be holy or unholy, going out of its way to perform sexual congress with a human. And we think about it, you know, like with Rosemary's Baby, like with uh, The Host, that was a movie, there was another one that involved um, tree, a tree, I think it was called The Entity, I believe that was what it was called, it was an 80s horror movie. Um, of course, there's Evil Dead, but that wasn't for the, for the purpose of uh, procreation. That was... Um, pleasure, which doesn't make it right or better or anything like that, but I'm just mean, in this instance, I'm talking about a a holy being, a holy deity or an unholy deity having sexual congress with a fleshly human being, um, and it, with the express purpose of having progeny, uh, and, and in the, all of those cases, never asking. We can automatically, not automatically, but I automatically assume that that's what the case was here, because of page 12, she's crying. And she seems to be crying profusely. So much so that, you know, the, the agony that she's gone through the, over the rejection of her, of her form, um, as well as um, just the entire ordeal kind of starts putting her out, like quite literally putting her down. Uh, and she falls out. And all these spirits start chasing after John because he's, you know, just a, a watchful eye. Whilst all these people die in this horrible, horrible tumult. Um, this torrent of holy fire and wind. Storms and thunder. Uh, he, he, he exits that place because <laughs> all these other spirits start transcending to their various planes, whether it be heaven or hell. Um, he decides to follow back the other spirit that just so happened to be a mole on the inside. A mole connected to Nargal. Now, he's, he's connected via their, their flesh. He has carried a, pe a body into hell, which isn't uncommon in this mythos, that it doesn't have to be just the spirit. You can bring the flesh into other dimensions. And that's the case here. He's got his digits deep, deep, deep into his shoulders. Um, and again, I just want to point out just the weird ways that people are contorted. 
again reminds me of the way that it got called back in the new 52 swamp thing i just i love i love the way that you know you have something that's established you can call back to it and expand upon your own story or set something up that makes almost no sense and have it picked up again later on and made to be really really cool we're made to believe that because john had sex with zed the heavenly host did not want to procreate with her not because she had sex, but because she had sex with John. And John was messed up. And John was messed up because of the deal that he made with Nergal. That's just the way it is. Nergal tries to figure out exactly what in the world was going on. Why, why his connection got severed the way that it did. Why the circumstances went down the way they did, even though it seemed like it was a victory for him. And he looks over at this clump and I didn't even realize it before, but it's just somebody's head that's just laid back. So, you know, they're laying, this body laid down, this face, all of this stuff's just green and branches. He calls it the dryad, and he mentions that there's something going on in the green. Now, as he approaches said dryad and goes to put his own fingers into the skull of this prone, laid female embodiment of the trees of the green i want to go in a little bit into what the idea of a dryad is i've never heard of it before d-r-y-a-d um, but what i what i automatically thought of was a swamp thing uh, the research got took me down that rabbit hole uh, into uh, tree worship it's this idea that people have uh, that they mythologized trees that they they feel that they have an important role in many of the world's both mythologies and religions and have been given deep and sacred meanings throughout the ages um, there's this idea that the most ancient cross-cultural symbolic representation of the universe's construction is the world tree we'll get to that in a second but there, there have been trees throughout mythology um the, there's the p-pal p-e-e-p-a-l um the Fiscus Rigliosa um, and the Banyan within Hinduism, the Tree of Knowledge in Judaism, which is the Sephiroth, the Ten Stages of Existence. Uh, there's the Christmas Tree in Germanic mythology. Um, and the Tree of Knowledge is in Christianity as well, of course, but it's way more prevalent in Judaism. Um, this, the uh, Saglagar Tree in Mongolian Tangrilism. Tengriism, T-E-N-G-R-I-I-S-M, the Bodhi tree in Buddhism, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the Druids and, and as well as uh, Germanic pagans are more closely associated to tree-central, uh, tree-centric um, worship. Um, but also, specifically the Locus Aminus, um, as well as sycamores are t associated with the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Apparently it's quote-unquote part of the scenery where the soul of the deceased finds blissful repose. And there's wishing trees, as I said, there's the world tree, uh, and, and we'll stick with that, although it has um, although it has the attributed phallic symbol aspect to it of having the tree trunk, that's a very generalized viewpoint of the tree. It is it is a hermaphrodite in its pure existence because there's no such thing as a male tree and a female tree. There's a male plant and a female plant, 
but trees are trees. They they are not only, you know, the this this stump that has, uh, um, in one way, shape, or form, stamen that can release seeds, but it very much also has the feminine symbol of being able to bear sustenance. It could bear fruit. So whether it's an oak tree and it bears acorns, or it's an apple tree and it breeds apple seeds, it produces a fruit that is hermaphroditic, as it were. It produces a fruit that's a female that has seeds within it already. If that apple were to drop and, and ripen to the point where the outer part with the nutrients for the seed get used up and sugars get used up get, and then break down, those seeds go into the earth, the earth that would now be somewhat hollowed out like, like, a, like a ditch because those fruit juices would clear away the soil the winds would carry the soil back over it. Now you have seeds in the ground. Those seeds grow and create another tree. It's a beautiful circle of life. Uh, the same thing with acorns. Um, like like uh, a lot of different nuts, the outer shell is there to protect the inner seed from the forces of nature. And you crack through that shell, you have something that, you know, squirrels go after in different types of wildlife, but it falls to the ground if it, it gets carried away by wind and the like, it can get buried and grow another tree. This idea that trees are an integral part not only of the, of the earth, but the world itself goes to that idea of, quote-unquote, the world tree. Um, although it's seen as a, a quote-unquote, Indo-European-centric uh, uh, belief, it, it also spans Siberia as well as the, the First Peoples of North and South America, North, Central, and South America. This idea that there's this gigantic tree that not only keeps up the heavens, but it holds the earth in place and in one way, shape, or form has its roots in the underworld. This one tree is the connector between the three planes of known existence for most of human history. Up until the 20th century, um, it was co a common belief, to, no matter what your religion was, that there was a heaven, an earth, and a, and, a, and a demonic afterlife, some form of a hell. It wasn't until we started opening up the doorway towards quantum physics and qu different quantum theories that we started to believe that there might just be different planes of existence uh, or different universes uh, within this existence that aren't necessarily explicitly heaven or explicitly hell. They just might be better or worse for you, this particular vessel of experience, i.e. the flesh. Um, in Hungarian mythology, they call it the uh, Vilagfa. Uh, in, in Turkish mytholo mythology, they call it the Agach Ana. The Yggdrasil in Germanic, that's what we normally know about, uh, as well as North mythology. The Modun in Mongolian mythology. Um, the Ashvatha, or the sacred fig tree in Hinduism. And the oak tree in Slavic and Finnish mythology. Uh, all these different trees, these gigantic trees, are seen as the ones that are the the ladder between the dimensions. And, and a proper shaman, a, a properly trained individual, could ascend that ladder or descend that ladder to find something else. Not so much about what it means to be alive, but something else about themselves. Um, within the, uh, the first peoples of the Americas, one of the beliefs is that the central world tree, the one tree that holds up the entire world, um, not not all their beliefs, because some of the indigenous peoples 
uh, believed that the world itself was being carried on the back of a gigantic tortoise, a part of a belief that uh, there was a tortoise that um, was traversing on the seas of space, as it were, space, the ether space, the dark matter was really a liquid, that this turtle was swimming around. And it was this belief, quite literally, that that, that turtle was swimming around a star. And there, there was different synonymic names of it, but that's something that's worth pointing out, because there's a belief, even though that the Earth was, I guess you could say, uh, a crescent, you know, or a half moon, half a half circle. Um, still, this belief that it was somewhat flat, maybe slightly curved, but mostly flat on the bottom. But that it was a heliocentric ex experience, not a geocentric, geocentric experience. That most of the world, most of the quote-unquote learned world, believed that the sun went around the earth and not the other way around. That in in reality is you know Earth going around the sun and the sun going around a central black hole in the Milky Way galaxy, and that galaxy circling around a supermassive black hole, one presumes, at the center of the universe. That last part is an assumption, but the rest of it is it holds true. Um, I, I came to this idea because the first thing I thought about when I saw that green lump, that green, that green mass uh, in hell with Nergal, the first thing I thought of was Swamp Thing. Um, so I figured, okay, there must be some kind of connection here with you know, him mentioning the green, the green being inside hell, as it were, and not being rotted away. You know, specifically thinking of the rot, the green, the red, and the rot. Uh, he, You have the representation of all three of those things there, or potentialities of them, uh, potential representation of the red, uh, with blood and flesh being in hell, a potentiality of that flesh, as well as the green being rotted away by the rot. But those two things not having a, a, a precedence in hell, but the green being able to thrive thusly. We saw it in, in Swamp Thing in various issues where the green could traverse and ascend to different planes of existence um, without being, connect, without being um, affected adversely, so long as the connection was kept unsevered. Um, and so that's what led me down the idea of a world tree to bring us back to the idea of what a dryad is. It's, it's a tree nymph. Specifically in you know a tree spirit in in Greek mythology, um, for the most part, it's it's a spirit that is under a demigod, but it, on the hierarchy, but more powerful than a demigod because it's not it's usually the ones that are the leaders are not half human, half god. Now these nymphs could mate with humans and then turn them into demigods, as it were, but they're just a subsection of that Parthenon of the Greek gods and goddesses, just to try and make it somewhat general. Um, usually, dryads were the tree nymphs that were specifically for oak trees. So that's the connection between dryads and the world tree. That although you could have tree nymphs for all for every tree, that, that's the idea. The belief is that tree nymphs exist in every tree, every plant. There's tree nymphs, and that's where the confusion gets uh, brought up between the idea of tree nymphs and people's beliefs in fairies. That in essence is in the same realm. Fairies are in swamps and and forests, and not just out and about in the pavement or, you know, paved roads because they have nowhere to hide unless it was, you know, a rock nymph, which I guess is a whole nother thing. You know, nymphs that would be hiding near rocks or under rocks, perhaps those types of nymphs are the ones that could be in buildings, but that's crazy talk. Um, but names, common names um, for different uh, dryads or their, 
their higher ups were, which are Hamadryads, um, uh, Chrysopelia, Dryope, and Eurydice. Eurydice is a name that people usually probably know of. Um, but what's fascinating is that Dryads are known about probably more prominently because of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. You know, things that are with, you know, either in Paradise Lost or Dante's Inferno. Anytime you start going into the aspects of heaven and hell uh, in literature, there's a lot of times where those two books or one of those two books are referenced. They're used as a reference point. Um, this idea that you could have nymphs that are specifically tied to a specific type of tree, in this case, oak trees, uh, mostly because... Uh, the word dris, D-R-Y-S, in Greek, uh, is, signifies the oak, the oak tree, acorns, um, or the acorn givers, because acorns the fruit. Um, it's, it's, I don't, I don't think this was a mistake, at all. Um, there's th these dryads, as I, as I stated, uh, are, are, I guess you could say, the progeny of hamadryads. So I had mentioned how you could have nymphs that are this subsection of gods, but they could also mate with humans and make something that's somewhat of a demigod. The thing that's somewhat of a demigod would be a dryad, as it were, something that's still somewhat human. It has power and dominion over trees and, and can converse with trees. It can appear anywhere as any and you know as that type of tree, specifically an oak tree. A hamadryad would be the the parentage of that tree, male or female. Uh, in this case, probably hermaphroditic, given what I had spoken about earlier. Um, hamadryads aren't specifically oak trees, even though the, the dryad part, dryas, um, is associated with oak. The, the connection of those two uh, words, those pieces of those words, uh, together make it kind of like a, you know, like I said, the senior authority of those types of trees. And there's so many different types. There's the, the syke, S-Y-K-E, for the fig tree. Uh, the Telea for the elm tree, the Aigueros for black poplar, the Morea for mulberry, but coincidentally, there's the uh, Balanos for the oak. There was a specific type of tree uh, the, for Hamadriads, or a tree name called Balanos, a Balanos. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm waiting for this name to, to call up. Uh, in history, there was or, or still is this idea that not only could you have these nymphs that are tied to trees, um, and specifically, you know, the, the balanos that, you know, that you could have the, the tree that's considered by many to be the, the strongest, most resilient, uh, or at the very least, one of the strongest, one of the most resilient trees on the planet Earth. Uh, the belief that you could have that tree perhaps be the one that has its roots connected into the underworld and uh, being a tree that holds everything up um, that you could have it be specifically the oak tree and use that as a, as a way to try and understand why everything continues to go unabated when it comes to the natural progression of reality um, it doesn't seem that far-fetched for peoples that, you know, are, are pre-internet, you know, pre-newspapers, they're just talking to each other. Um, another, and you know, just because I don't want to tie this in one religion 
or one part of the world or another. Uh, another a term synonymous with dryad in the sense that there's a version of them but slightly different, like a dampir is a half-human, half-vampire, but that would exist in Eastern Europe. But, um, well, really, like, well, really, a dampir is more Western Europe. You could have a strigoi, and that would be a full vampire in Eastern Europe. And you could have different versions of a bloodsucker, uh, in just an English translation, in Northern Africa. Um, a synonymous thing to the dryad and the hamadryad is the gnat. It's it's a Burmese spirit, or a, or a, not even so much in Burma, but people that are adherents to Buddhism. It's it's considered like a green spirit. It's it's a it's a tree nymph. And they they have so many different uh, versions of it. Apparently, at least thirty seven, uh, in a proper order, going from the Shinnemi to the Thagyamin. Those are the different names of the different tree nymphs. The Thagyamin is considered the king of all the tree nymphs, or gnats, in Buddhism. And it's identified with the Buddhist diva, Sakra, and the Hindu deity, Indra. It's often portrayed atop a three-headed white elephant holding a conch shell in one hand and a yak tail whisk in the other. Excuse me. It's con it was considered just the king of all of the gnats. And it's the only gnat in the official Parthenon not to have undergone a sudden and violent death. This ties to this idea of Swamp Thing that uh, it never quite dies. The the avatar, the 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 shell of Swamp Thing can never die because it will always it can always regenerate somewhere on the planet. The spirit could die and it could go to the Parthenon of trees as it were, it could pass on to the afterlife, the Swamp Thing universe's version of Elysium or a, a more heavenly type of purgatory where you're waiting to be culled back into the uh, heavenly host, as it were, or the Parthenon of Trees. Um, the Thagyamin is just another type of, as it were, Hamadrayad. Um, and, and just so it's clear, I said Diva, that's not, uh, it's more like Deva, D-E-V-A, not a D-I-V-A. It's, it's considered the most powerful type of deity, as it were. Um, should I say that? Um, one of the many different types of non-human beings who share the characteristics of being more powerful, longer-lived, and in general, more enlightened and having less desires than the average human being. So, if you think about it, Swamp Thing, for the most part, is just doing his thing. But, given the events of both Swamp Thing issue 43, right? No, 42, because that's said 24 issues later. 42 issues later, something like that. I'm messing this up. 34. Not a little, uh, it's not flat, not cool. Um, and then issue 76, uh, he, he was preoccupied with the, the pleasures of the flesh, despite the fact that he had already passed on to his Hamadrayad or Thagyamin or not form. Here comes my bad pun. Oh, what a diva. <laughs> That's right, it, it had to be said. Uh, but this is all connected again. This goes to what I talked about in The Morning Star, which is the uh, Lucifer podcast about the Lucifer graphic novel. Um, I brought this up in, in uh, earlier episodes of this podcast. Um, there are so many different synonymous ways to explain existence. Um, 
one would have to assume that that would have to happen uh, on this plane of existence, trying to understand the things that are around us. If one person is on one side of the world and they call this, you know, a tree, and someone on the other side of the world calls it, you know, the embodiment of a gnat, not G-N-A-T, but just N-A-T, um, who's to say that they were wrong just because it's that's the name that they call it? But we're both looking at the same thing, just different versions of the same thing. You know, you're looking at one one oak tree, I'm looking at another oak tree, and we're both saying that, wow, that's a pretty damn cool tree. I wish I had a name for it, but we speak different languages. Now that we've all got Google, and everything could be, you know, translated quite easily, It's the onus is upon us, as the more enlightened species, to become more accepting of other people's interpretations of the things that we all see either on a daily basis or at the very least once in our lives, or uh, even below that least area, we know someone that's experienced that, and we've had either read about it in a fictional or non-fictional account, or we've seen it in a representation of art other than literature, thusly being a film or a television or a documentary. Um, we, we shouldn't discount people's experiences. We should never do that, never do that. But all of that is what I thought about. A lot of those things started coming up. Like, oh yeah, I remember like these different religions that you know worship trees or, or revere trees. As people, a lot of times they they throw a worship under subjugation. Subjugation is an aspect of worship, but there's also reverence. There's respect. There's so many things that are involved with worship. There's a lot of horrible negative connotations with worshiping, unfortunately. But I digress. Of course, I have. Nergal realizes that. John has been tricked along with Dr. Holland. Um, or rather that John has tricked Nergal uh, as well as Dr. Holland has. And he does this thing. And at the bottom right of the page is this like alien moment. Alien one, the first movie. Um, bottom of paper, page 15, digital, page 14. He quite literally starts ripping open his own chest. And he's not screaming, he's just talking. Again, more imagery that would just be so vivid to see. And just gigantic hellhounds just flight like you just, you just see this flesh being ripped apart these green jaws jowling at the white spirit of john mr constantine himself um or for some of you if it, you know what no i was going to address it but i'm not going to address it because i said i'm going to keep i'm going to keep that mantra i'm going to keep that mantra so that was an easter egg for one individual excuse me Oh man, Elda's looking down, 50 degree weather, not even, I think it's 40 some degrees now, anyway, um, there's a beautiful, kind of a, a slow motion montage that is represented in these three panels at the bottom of page 16, um, yeah, digital page 16, where you could kind of imagine the, the frame skipping, where the white spirit is getting closer and closer and the dogs are pursuing closer and closer. And he jumps into the water, and it seems like he comes upon Atlantis. Under the sea. Under the sea? Under the sea. And we get a gigantic baleen whale. I have this horrid fear of the sea. I love space. Like I'm fascinated by four dimensions. This idea that you can look up, down, left, and right, and everywhere could be up, down, or left, or right. Your X and your Y axis is completely thrown off kilter because... The Z-axis exists, as well as I think it's 
considered Z2, or perhaps W, one of the two. When it comes to space, it might just be S as a simple denotion. There you go. Um, but for some reason, the idea of being underwater creeps me out that more than being in space, because I think the probability of being chomped alive by something big under the sea is more probable than being hit by a meteor. Um, I got that wrong. A meteor. No, that's right. Meteor is on Earth. It's a meteorite um, or an asteroid or just regular space debris, let alone some UFO, you know, sort of some distant galaxy. The probability of that happening is so small. You would just be in space. I would just be freezing and then, you know, dying without proper uh, equipment on. But that's no big deal. Like, it doesn't creep me out. Like, oh, I have nothing around me and I'd just be floating in space. I'd have the moments of realization like, oh, I'm too far out. And that weird, like, again, that's in a weird situation. That's like, oh, I'm just for some reason in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, and this isn't lost. And there's no islands around. And now I have to, what, what do I do? Keep floating and kicking my feet so I can stay above water even though I see no land around me? Or just go down to the bottom and just drown um, because there's no hope? Uh, that probability is a little bit more probable than being stranded in the middle of space and not anywhere near a space station, you know, like the ISS, um, International Space Station, uh, or any other shuttle that would be orbiting, or the planet, or the moon, you know, it's so, so far-fetched. Statistically speaking, you know, the probability of me being in that latter situation before being in the former is, is so small, so minuscule, that I don't even, it, it doesn't equate to me as a fear. And even if presented with the situation, I'm just being like, well, I'm resigned to my fate. I'll stay in here until the oxygen runs out. The same thing with the ocean. But with the ocean, the probability goes higher for me to die in some weird way. Not just because Jaws is better, and I can prove it. Uh, it's because, you know, instances like this. Uh, with me, it's, it's the giant squid. The idea that the eye could be the size of the human body, that's just a bit much to take in for me. Uh, but this gigantic baleen whale, beautifully rendered, in the middle of the page on these three panels. Like, and you can see it digitally, like, oh, you can see what's at the end. But the first panel, at first, I was just like, oh, that's just the background. Like, I generally just thought that. And then when I saw the little bit of blue at the top left of the panel, I was like, oh, okay. Okay, it's a mouth. Like, and then clearly you see it. It's like, oh, so it's a gigantic mouth. But it's a creepy-ass thing, man. This idea of a baleen whale uh, kind of floating along through the, through the water, trying to scoop up krill and shrimp, going through that filter in its teeth, its teeth that are really just a membrane it's it's a it's nature is a beautiful thing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I don't necessarily want to spoil any of the dialogue that's going on here, but it's a or or the imagery, but it's just it's beautiful, man. And again, all of this, John, is still some white entity. And you get this this swiping. <laughs> Nergal really tries to get a hold of him after putting itself into the green. So it has this dryad, you know, this this tree nymph in hell that's not swamp thing. It's, it's like I said, it's a dryad. It's not a hamadryad. In this case, Swamp Thing would be a hamadryad. Um, I guess in connotation, so would the Parliament of Trees. We don't have to talk about them right now. Um, swamp Thing kind of just residing in the earth, not taking a form, because his, his spirit is within John's body. John's astral form, sick and tired of bouncing around the, the universe, as it were, and not having any proper foothold, 
decides bump this i'm going to travel through the green and make my way back to my body because he, he must be somewhere near my body to make sure that the sexual congress goes on without a hitch uh, you know to protect not only the form of john but abigail because he loves her and it's here that we get this moment that i'm figuring this is we're seeing orgasm this is one of a few times if i'm not mistaken it's happened in this series um because he screams he screams and we see the lines on his body of his body shuddering and then he apologizes to her. And granted, we're meant to believe that he's just apologizing for returning without letting her know, as if returning in the middle of everything. But her reaction makes it like, oh, you know, basically, you came in me. And the image that we see at the bottom right of page 20 uh, in paper, yeah, it's 20 digitally as well. Like she goes directly into the water. And whether that's to um, evacuate herself, as it were, uh, or... It's just because, uh, metaphorically speaking, she feels unclean because it's even though she knew that the body was being hosted by Dr. Holland, uh, it was it now at a at, just at, at a particular moment in that sexual congress was being hosted by John, and it made her feel unclean because that's not what she wanted. And if we just get more beautiful images, more respect being paid to this character of Dr. Holland. And they part ways. And a word is said to John, a word that reminds him of where he's come from, where he's been running away from, and where he must eventually make it back to. His world being left in shambles, in various states of disrepair. And I just want to point out, again, I don't like spoiling anything, so I'm not spoiling, especially the last couple of pages. But he goes through a box, and one of the folders says Swamp Thing, and the other one says Zatanna. And if you look at his left hand, he's putting up a, a symbol that's usually associated with magic, uh, the devil's horns. Whether it be Zatanna or Zatara, or later on in the publication history of graphic novels, Doctor Strange. Um, and then, you know, subsequently, Jean Constantine. I don't think any of this is a coincidence. And so we've come to the end of this issue. Uh, what what has scared him or gotten his attention once he's found his form again is what will be the subject of the next issue. I, I vaguely remember issue 11 being about that. Um, and it's it's bound to bring him back to reality, you know, having gone through some bizarre existence that was uh, the astral plane and not against his will. You know, he wanted to be there, but where he was being placed was, one could say, against his will. Um to, to get a stark remembrance of to, to get a to get a, um, a very sharp recollection of, of what it means to be human for him as a character for John um, to get that through nothing but a word shows you again just how powerful Jamie Delano's writing is how powerful this character has become in, in less than the span of a year this is 10 months worth of a story being told and we, we as, as the audience, know this character so well. How many different graphic novels that have existed throughout history can say the same thing? I mean, Superman, the f his first appearance in Action Comics, yes. Batman, first appearance, yes. Wonder Woman, yes. But now we have Swamp Thing. This first issue, people, people still regard that as one of the greatest introductory issues of any character of all time. 
I feel like this this character is is able to be so um, impactful because of the twists and turns that could happen at a moment's notice, despite the fact that you get you know prerequisite cliffhangers, things that make you that hook you and pull you into the next issue, drag you along, kicking and screaming from story to story to story point. Um, it's masterful storytelling. It's 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 glorious art, glorious art. I would say that this theme, the theme of this particular issue, uh, would be deception. Clearly, deception. Uh, Mr. Holland, Doctor Holland, I, rather, I apologize, deceived John into believing that he would, or one would assume, be in some form of control. Excuse me, that was my wrist in the astral plane. Uh, John has been deceiving Nergal for a few issues now. Um, really, you could say since the beginning. <laughs> since the beginning. That's a little Easter egg for people. Um, Nergal has been deceiving John, deceiving the Crusaders. And then, you know, this mole, one would assume that mole that Nergal was using was under the impression that, like a like a typical thrall, and that word was used here, that's a callback to... Bennett and the Queen, um, that they, they believed that they would get some kind of power and they were just being used by Nergal to Nergal's nefarious deeds. Um, the Crusaders deceiving uh, Zed, newly christened Mary, uh, into believing that you know what she was doing was of her own free will. It was, it's her destiny, yes, but she should accept it and, and allow that to be considered her own choice. Um, you know, Zed deceiving the Crusaders into believing that she was a worthy vessel, given their guidelines, given the fact that she knew she just, within 24 hours, had gotten into sexual congress with John. Um, and I guess Abigail not doing any deceiving herself, but being deceived, and not willfully deceived, because it's not like he continues thrusting away John in his, when he comes back to his body. Um, it seems like he kind of, because of the, the the abrupt nature of the re-entering of his body, the the, the re-ensouling, as it were. That's a callback to Angel. <laughs> um, that perhaps... Excuse me. Oh, this goddamn snot. Um, that uh, she was being deceived, even, for, even if for a moment, into believing that she was still being one with Dr. Holland, but instead it was John. So, so I'm uh, quite adamant about that. It must be deception. I uh, wanted to have a bit of an addendum because for some reason it seems like the apologies or whatever are in this podcast, but I feel like I started it somewhere else. I'd mentioned it in another podcast, in another show, but I could be wrong. The, uh, the Joss Whedon thing. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I still hold Buffy and Angel as some of the best television ever put out there. And it just depends on my mood. I could be like, oh, Buffy was the best thing. Or if I'm feeling a little bit dark, I'd be like, oh, Angel was the best thing. Uh, and I've mentioned before, and I'll say it again, I think it's just my, I had a, a different expectation of how the ending was going to play out, given that we, with Buffy, we were led to believe that it was a never-ending battle. With Buffy, it seemed like, oh, no, this is the end. Like, it all was Sunnydale, Hellmouth, all that. It's done. Nothing else comes up. You read the graphic novels, clearly that wasn't the end of the story. If you watch Angel, how everything ends out, it ends quite literally like, oh, no, this is not over, and it never will end. That could be seen as daunting 
from the perspective of the of the viewer. That can be seen as quite negative, dour, from the viewer's standpoint, from the audience's standpoint. But that, to me, seems like what you would expect from a warrior's journey. If that warrior is never returning home, if they're always out for the fight, you know. And if a warrior is something that's demonic or angelic, then returning home is returning to their domain. If they don't return to their domain and they stay on Earth, then they must continue to fight, or just sit in a bar somewhere. Of course, that's wasn't an option at a certain point in that series. But again, not trying to spoil stuff. So you know, that's just the people that were questioning, you know, and then brought it up as a question uh, through emails. Um, I I love the series and I love the ending. I'm talking about here. I, I adored Angel as I told, but it was at a different time in my life when I watched that. Even though I saw it when at the same time as Buffy, I saw it again later on, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is the best damn thing I've ever seen in my life." Um, with Buffy, uh, it was just that the very last episode, and specifically, like quite literally, the last minute of the episode, I was like, "Okay, hold on a second. I thought this last damn near decade of of experiences." seven seasons if I'm not mistaken um, or it could be eight seasons I'm going to overshoot and say eight seasons um, I was being led to believe that there could be so many more stories even though the stories can no longer be told I was led to believe that like Indiana Jones would just end on a high note like okay we're off like we're going to go home and, and relax but something bad is going to happen eventually that's what I was led to believe, and it, and I wasn't given that impression at the end of that. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't good. And I feel like I gave this apology in a previous episode. Uh, I still believe it was amazing. I still give both series a 10 out of 10. Like I still say Buffy's 10 out of 10, Angel's 10 out of 10. Or 100 out of 100, or a billion out of a billion, like whatever you want to call it. Five out of five stars. Like It was still amazing. It's just I thought it was going to go one way and it went somewhere else. That's all. All I was trying to put forward in that other... Uh, show whichever episode because i don't even know what podcast it was what show it was that i talked about this but i put the apology in this podcast so it's you know it's easter eggs all these podcasts interact with each other um i was trying to put forward that uh, a little bit more of a concise understanding of what my opinion was i love the show i i still think it's it, it completely ch it changed the game it changed the landscape of television it made cliffhangers cool again it it made uh, using modern-day colloquialisms, attractive, as opposed to seeing, or being seen as what punks do, what what street toughs do, what what adolescents do, but adults no adults don't speak that way. No, that's not true, man. Everyone's trying to be hip. Everyone's trying to be cool. Nobody's trying to be a square. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I had to get that clear, get, go on the record with that, because I, I think some people believe that. I was like, oh, so what? You don't like Joss Whedon? You hate Joss Whedon? You hate the Avengers? I love the Avengers. It felt good. Like by the end of that movie, I was like, oh, this feels great. This feels great. You know, um, I love where all that stuff is going. Uh, I just, I, you know, I love all graphic novels. I've said that before, and I'll say it again. I might only mention one particular publishing house, DC Comics. Um, because it's the one that I have an affinity for and have had one for more than half of my life. Um, but it doesn't mean that I discount the other publishing house, the major publishing house, uh, as well as all the other big ones, you know, Image, Dark Horse, um, IDW, you know, just to say a top cow, just because I like one publishing house doesn't mean all the rest of them are crap or something like that. Like, I don't, I don't work that way because I can appreciate everything for what it is. 
it, it's it's somebody's dreams whoever it is whatever artist it's somebody's dreams being interpreted through an established character whether the character is being newly established established i.e like a hellboy or spawn or scott pilgrim or it's firmly established like a wonder woman batman superman or john constantine i just want to make sure that's cleared up uh, but you know you want to take part in what some of you, you listeners this again i just i'm so thankful to you guys you guys are awesome you're even sticking around to these listening to these weird ass episodes um i don't give the exact number because i don't like to quote it because it changes it keeps growing each day and i don't know what time in you know in the future you're listening to this but it's in the thousands now uh it's it's above 10,000. I cannot believe how many of you are listening to this show. I I do minimal publicity with this stuff. Like I quite literally talk about the other podcasts at the end of the show. And I just tweet out when new episodes come out. But beyond that, like, and from the show, like each respective show, from beyond that, I just, you know, do what you expect on Twitter. Like I tweet and re retweet. I'm sorry, I retweet and fave like other people's tweets that maybe have something to do with the subject matter of the show. That's it. I don't really go out of my way to... Everybody wants to show on a daily basis, like over promote. I don't do that. You guys are all talking to each other, talking, you know, uh, reaching out to people, telling people about the show, and it's awesome. It's really, really cool. It really makes me feel good, and it's very motivating. Even though I would want to do this um, if I had absolutely no fans, you know, no listeners whatsoever, I, I would still want to do this. But the fact that there are people that are continuing to come back and that they're having a, such positive responses to these shows. It, it's it's heartwarming you know it makes me feel really good it really does so i don't know how to make you guys feel good in 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 turn because i don't know all of you individually respect respectively so i'm just going to continue to do what i've been doing which is uh providing these bizarre episodes that look into these these issues double entendre intended um with as much love and care as I possibly can because hopefully you'll, you'll continue to be able to share that experience with me digitally across the expanse of time um, creating these little pods I like calling them that because they're little pods of time a little bit of insight into my thought process uh, we'll never really be interacting at the same moment in time I will always be reaching out into the future towards you and you'll always be reaching out into the past towards me and even though there's that gulf of of space that exists between us, um, it's all a perception of reality. I'm with you now. And eventually you will be with me. It's all great. So if you want to participate in this weird landscape that is amber sound, as it were, uh, just type my name in a, your uh, search bar in your podcast app. Like, however, I don't know how it works on Android. I know with iTunes Store, you know, or your podcast app, you just go to the search thing. Just type in my name, Nick Antoine, and I see space A-N-T-O-I-N-E, Nick Antoine. I do not put a K on it because there's no K in Nicholas. There's an H, but I'm not going to spell my name Nish Antoine because I'm not niche. I guess I am niche, but I'm definitely not Nietzsche. And I don't want people to conf confuse it or think I'm trying to conflate myself to some level, my ego, uh, to try and propose that I'm anything like uh, dear Fred Friedrich Nietzsche. 
or Friedrich Nietzsche, however your pronunciation is. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone. It's not what I want to do. I want, I want love, 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 love. Because there's nothing you can do that can't be done. And there's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Go to your comic book stores. If you don't go to your comic book stores, use the DC app. The DC app is awesome. It's kick-ass. It's got all this stuff in there. you got to pay these people, man. Why? I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's not the corporation. The corporation is just the middleman. They're giving the money to the people so they can continue to make their art. As the middleman, they are as well madmen. They are the advertisers. They are the ones that produce stuff. They're the publishers. They're the ones that get this awesome stuff to us. If those individuals weren't there, it would be an entire world of a plethora of artists. As you could just say, like a billion artists, let's just say at a certain point, all trying to give their art to everybody else without any kind of central funnel. Even if you did have a site like YouTube or Tumblr or uh, DeviantArt or Instagram, it would still have to be, oh, keywords that pull you towards something. And then eventually it gets a certain amount of followers. That's a democratic way of dispersing art. But at a certain point, it's good to have an art house. People like to go to museums. They like to go to stores. They like to be able to go and shop online, but as well be able to walk into a clothing store and try things on. You know, you should be able to have the freedom of choice, the ability to have options. So you've got the option to get it digitally. You've got the option to go into a store and get it. Why not do both? Why not pay for your art in whatever way you can pay for it, whatever form you choose to get it, whether it's digital or in paperback? Support the artists. Support the artists. I'm biased, but so what? It just means I'm even that much more adamant about the cause. So go do it. Go do it, peoples. And uh, speaking of supporting the artists, and that's in gigantic quotation marks, um, go to theambridge.org. <laughs> and uh, you can check out all the stuff there. Everything is there. But you can also, um, you can also hit the con contribute thing, the contribution. It's, in, it's, a, it's one of the pages. And then it takes you to the PayPal thing. And you can give like a buck or five bucks or $26,752. I don't know why that number. I just wanted to throw that number out there. Um, just do it because, you know, that's how people like me, I mean, specifically, that's how I eat, how I eat food. Uh, I want to put that guilt right on you guys' shoulders, let you be my own personal Jesus. You could be the people that hear my prayers, and I hope somebody who cares. I'm just paraphrasing and punning all over the place. That's, that's what happens when you're delirious and it's <clears throat> 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, give the show five stars because you're, you're the nicest person in the world. And collectively, that makes you the nicest people in the world. And you want to give the show five stars so that other people can partake in this experience the same way that you do. Um, yes, because we should all be loving each other, loving on each other performing lovely acts with each other. And it doesn't have to be sexual congress. It could be oral pleasures, i.e. A-U-R-A-L pleasures, not O-A. Jesus, I can't even, I can't even spell to get that joke out. A-U-R-A-L pleasures, not O-R-A-L pleasures. It's all for your ear. It's all for your ear. Okay. This has been episode 10. <laughs> it's so time to end this. I have been Nick Antoine. You have been the unwitting listener. Thank you for listening. Drink something cold.